So Leviticus, we are in Leviticus chapter 25 today, and uh, I'm actually going to start this message by talking about baptism, because Alex said something really interesting earlier. He said that this is a symbol of something that's taking place inside of a person. This is an outward expression of an inward movement that's taking place. Baptism is something you do to tell the people around you and the world in front of you that I am now a follower of Jesus, and the old has passed and the new has come. But it's a really interesting symbol when you just stop, if you get out of your church head for a moment and just think about life in general and you stare at this and you think about what just went on, it's a weird thing, right? That somehow I'm gonna signify this change in me by letting somebody dunk me in a swimming pool inside of a building, right? Like that's kind of a strange thing. If you wanted to signal that you're a follower of Jesus, aren't there lots of other ways to do it? I mean, couldn't you just, could we have you write a small sermon and give a sermon on why you made the decision to follow Jesus? That would probably panic some people, I'm sure. Um, or, or could we have you do a dance and sing a particular song? Let's all sing the I just decided to follow Jesus song and you do that to tell people. Or you could have a shirt that says it and walk around for a week and you have to wear that. Like, there are different ways to do that, and yet this is the one that God has prescribed for us, and there's a reason for it. See, not only does this symbolize something taking place in the moment, it also is speaking to something that's going to happen at some point in the future, right? Yes, in the moment, there's a life change that has taken place. The old has gone, and the new has come. I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm living a different kind of life. That's true in this but it's also painting a picture of something in the future. It's painting a reality that there will be a burial, but there will be a resurrection. It's saying something about now, and it's saying something about the future. And it turns out that because of this, we are not that different from the ancient Hebrews, are we? Because in the book of Leviticus, what we've been seeing is that they had rituals, they had symbols that they engaged in that meant something to them in the moment, but those things also pointed to something in the future. Each week as we've moved through this book, we've seen that these things were showing us something about who God is, about who we are, and about something in the days ahead. And that is especially the case in Leviticus chapter 25. So this morning what I'm going to do is just read the beginning part of the text, explain it, read a little bit more, and then we'll dive into the, the meat of this. So if you have your Bible, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1, in Leviticus chapter 25, God institutes two important rhythms into the life of Israel. It starts like this. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land and all its yield shall be for food. So this first section here institute this thing that's called the Sabbath year, right? Which means that every seventh year, the people are supposed to take a break. It's like God says, hey, you know that thing that you do every week, how you work for six days and you take Sunday, you take the Sabbath Saturday for them, you take that off. He says, I want you to do that, but I want you to do it in years. I want you to work six years, and then I want you to take a year off. Which sounds beautiful, doesn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine your boss coming in like in January and tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, why don't you take the rest of the year off? Paid. 
That's what God is working into the rhythm of the people here. God said, I, I, I'm putting this thing in place. I want the land to sit fallow, which by the way, now we know agriculturally that was a really wise thing to do, right? But I don't want you to work for, for, for this entire year. I don't want you to labor the way you normally labor. And if you thought, that, you thought that taking one day a week would show you how I provide for you, imagine how taking a year will impact your faith. I mean, imagine going a year and just seeing God's provision over and over and over again. This would shape you into a faith-filled people, wouldn't it? So God says, this is what I want you to do. But then we keep reading on in verse 8, and we see something else. He adds to this. He says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. So this thing is called the year of Jubilee. So we have the year of Sabbath, and then we have the year of Jubilee. And if you keep reading on in the text, basically you get into the fine print, the, the legalese of the year of Jubilee, and God begins to give them some parameters and what's, what's happening here. And what you'll discover is that the 50th year is sort of like a super Sabbath year, where the whole nation does this hard reset. That's what's happening here. All the same stuff applies as a normal Sabbath year, but in the year of Jubilee, what you'll read as you read on is that all the debts get forgiven and the land is returned to the people that originally possessed it. In fact, God outlines this. He says, okay, so let's say that sometime you're, you're living life and you begin to face hard times and you need some extra income. God outlines, he says, here's what you do. If you're gonna sell your land to somebody else, to one of your neighbors, you calculate the number of years between that moment and the year of Jubilee. Then you value the number of harvests. Remember, it's an agrarian culture. You value the number of harvests until the year of Jubilee, and then you give the person that much money. So if it's 12 years until the year of Jubilee, then you figure out the value of 12 harvests of that land. You pay the person for those 12 years, but in the year of Jubilee, you get your land back. Your debts are forgiven. Like, Everything is wiped away, and, and, and you start again. Your debts are forgiven at the beginning of the year of Jubilee. I want you to hold on to that phrase, your debts are forgiven. So the way I think about the year of Jubilee is this. It is like God's control-alt-delete, right? He hits control-alt-delete, and everything just resets. It is this hard reset, and can you imagine a nation or a people that operated like this? Can you imagine, like, can you imagine if this was built into the rhythms, there was this kind of, like, this kind of thing happening? It's sort of hard to conceive of, but it's also beautiful because there's something at the root of it. And what we see at the root of this is the heart of God. See, he's not just revealing the need for us to recognize his care or his provision. He's also revealing his desire for justice, for things to operate a certain way, for there to be a rightness about things. And by the way, when I say justice, I mean biblical justice, which is when everything is set right. Everything is the way it's supposed to be as defined by God and not by men. And in God's justice, there is this deep sense of fairness and dignity that's offered to everyone because he sees his image in everyone that he created. And that's his hope for humanity. That's what he wants. 
So, so, so God builds this into the rhythm because the problem with humanity is there's this tendency that bubbles up inside of us, inside of our hearts, to, to grab everything that we can possibly grab at the expense of other people, which is why God says, listen, listen, if you're going to be people who are unlike other people, then we need to address this proclivity that, that seems to exist inside the human heart. We need to address this. So, we have the year of Jubilee. I want you to do this every 50 years. But remember, everything in Leviticus has a meaning in the moment and then is pointing to something in the future, right? It's just, just like baptism, it means something. So what is it? Yes, God wants us to, to think about justice and economics. Yes, he wants us to do something fiscally that's different than the rest of society around us but he also wants us to see something else in this. So what is the something else? Now, I need you to recall that at the time that the people of Israel are receiving the book of Leviticus, they're wandering. They've escaped Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, and during this time of wandering through the desert, they have with them a temporary worship structure called a tabernacle. We would probably call it a tent, but they called it a tabernacle, and the tabernacle was set up. When they moved their camp, the tabernacle was set up in the middle of the camp, and the people lived around the tabernacle, which is why it was said of these people that God dwelled among them, because God was in the middle of the camp. God had the biggest tent, and that's where God was, was in this place. So God dwelled in that. But then as they moved to a permanent land, as they moved into the promised land, as they settled in the city of Jerusalem, they then moved from a temporary structure to a permanent structure, this thing called the temple. Now, here's what's interesting about the temple. When the temple in Jerusalem was completed, it was the seventh year of the seventh month, and it coincided with the fall harvest festivals. Now, if you were to rewind a few weeks, and hopefully most of you caught the message a couple weeks ago, you probably recall that there were certain festivals that were associated and practiced with the spring festivals, then there were festivals that were practiced with the fall harvest, and, and what we noticed in that time, we saw that the spring festivals, they pointed to events that had already taken place. They, they pointed to the first coming of Jesus. And the fall festivals, as we looked at it, pointed to events that seemed to have not happened yet, and they seemed to be pointing to the second coming of Jesus. And what became clear in all of this is that we find ourselves in this sort of in between the two places, the spring and the fall. We find ourselves there. But here's what's interesting. In the spring, if you think about this, they had, the people had this temporary tabernacle that was with them. Then there's this permanent structure that's built coinciding with the fall festivals. So the permanent temple gets completed in the fall. So if you go back to the festivals, you remember that um, the fall festivals, they begin with the Feast of Trumpets, followed by the Day of Atonement. They blow the trumpet, celebrate the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I want you to notice something about what we just read in Leviticus 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then what do you do? Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day, the Feast of Trumpets. And then on the Day of Atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. So the year of Jubilee is lining up. The year of Jubilee lines up not just with the temple being constructed, but also the fall festivals. So all of this is working together, and all of it is pointing to the second arrival or the second coming of Christ. So what does this mean? 
Well, every indication is that God is once again in the Leviticus dividing time. He's saying, listen, this thing over here is about this time or this season in the world. And then this thing, that thing over there, that is about this thing that's going to take place in the future. God has been doing this throughout the book, and he seems to be doing it again. We have past, and then we have future. So the year of Jubilee is pointing to the future, and the Sabbath year is pointing to the first coming of Christ. And the wandering in the wilderness, the wilderness temple, the wilderness tabernacle is associated with the first arrival of Jesus and the second, the year of Jubilee is associated with the second. So now if you fast forward to the book of John, suddenly some things start to make some sense. There's a moment where the Jewish leaders, they hear about John the Baptist and they send some people to go interrogate him and say, who are you? And uh, in John 1, we read this. He says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out, where? In the wilderness. He's associating himself with the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's crying out from the wilderness. And who's he making a way for? the Lord to be made known, waiting for the Lord to be announced in this place. What's also interesting, remember, um, it was said during the wandering temple days that the Lord dwelled among his people. Listen to the language of a few verses before what I just read. Verse 14 of John 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It sounds like that wandering tabernacle, right? We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Sabbath year seems to be a reflection of the first coming of Jesus or the first tabernacle. God says, it's going to be like this. And during the Sabbath year, by the way, you rested. You saw God's provision. You knew he was your provider, which then makes sense of something that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body for more than clothing. Like Jesus is using the language that would define the Sabbath year to now say, hey, now that I'm here, you live this way. You live knowing God's your provider. You live in this way. It sounds like a Sabbath year. Or what about this? Jesus is, um, he's arguing with Jewish leaders and he says this to him. He drops this on him. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, speaking of himself, so that no one may eat of it and not die, so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus says, remember the wilderness? Remember the manna? He goes, in this wilderness, I'm the manna. I'm the bread. So again, he's associating himself with the wilderness. A little later, there's another debate. John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. So again, he's connecting himself to the tabernacle. So, so all of this indicates, um, all of this indicates that Jesus ushered in, in his first coming, a sort of Sabbath year season for us. Which means that right now, we're living in the Sabbath. We're living in the Sabbath year. We're living with Jesus metaphorically in this. And by the way, the Sabbath is intended to be good, right? Right? Is anybody with me on this? Sabbath is supposed to be good, right? <laughs> yeah. 
But the Sabbath is also associated with the wandering, right? The, the, the Sabbath is associated with a, a sense of things being temporary, things not being permanent. The Sabbath is associated with this idea that we haven't fully fulfilled everything that we've been promised yet. That's what the Sabbath year was pointing to, is pointing to the wilderness wandering tabernacle. Like, basically, it's like saying, this is good, but we know this isn't everything. We know this isn't all that there is. Like, we know that there must be more. It's like the people of Israel knew, it's great to have the tabernacle. It's great to be in this desert, but we know there's something beyond that's a fulfillment of these things. Side note, I think this is a really healthy perspective for people of faith to carry during these years. Because there are times, right? Aren't there times when... um, Life takes an unexpected turn or you get test results from a doctor that you weren't expecting or um, you lose somebody close to you. Jobs go away, relationships break. There are times when this stuff happens and you, you have this sense like Jesus has some unfinished business. Anyone ever feel that way? You ever feel like, I mean, even as people of faith, it's okay to say this, by the way. It's okay to go through things and have moments when you ache and you go, man, I love Jesus and my life is so good with him. But sometimes it feels like, but there's more than this. Like, there's more, there's got to be something else. This can't be the rest of the story. Like, Jesus, you have some unfinished business to take care of. Like, we can walk in grace and peace with him, but we also can sense, we can, I believe we can sense that there's still work to be done. Are you with me on this? Like this is just an appetizer for something in the days ahead. He's with us, but we're still in the wilderness. And wilderness things happen when you're wandering in the wilderness, right? This isn't all that there is. So the Sabbath year points to the first tabernacle, the first coming, the Jubilee points to the second tabernacle, the second coming. It points to a future when those things we feel get resolved. It points to a future when the work of Jesus gets completed, when he puts a bow on it and hands it to us. That's what it's pointing to. It's it's the Sabbath year on steroids. It's this hard reset where everything and everyone is made whole in Christ. There's this interesting moment where Jesus is debating with the religious leaders and, and he says something really strange in verse 42 of Matthew 12. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is referring to himself but he's stirring up the pot when he says this because Solomon was an amazing individual that was revered, right? Solomon was the wisest man in history. Solomon was the wealthiest man in history. Solomon improved the lives of his people. Solomon was the one who built the first temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you you guys remember Solomon, right? And they all nod their heads, yes. He goes, it's like that. I'm like that, only bigger and better. I'm like that. I'm... If you were with us two weeks ago when I talked about the feasts, you also recall that I talked about how the feasts aligned with the gestational development of an infant in its mother's womb. Does anyone remember that? Hopefully a few of you do, okay. Um, Only one person asked me after the services why I didn't say one thing. And uh, they came to me and said, you left out the best part. You left off the birth. And I said, because I'm gonna talk about it in two weeks. (laughs) I saved that. So I just want you to think about this. 
To go back to what I was talking about, the fall feasts are describing the second coming of Christ, the spring feast describing the first coming of Christ. But they're also describing life in the womb, right? So they aligned with life in the, in the womb, which means if we take that timeline and we place ourselves into that, we place ourselves, because we said we're between the spring and the fall, that means we're placing ourselves where? In the womb. We're in the womb, which means that there's a birth that's yet to come. It reminds me of this um, little parable or story that Henry Nouwen wrote in a book called Our Greatest Gift. Uh, he tells the story of these two twins in, in the mother's womb, a boy and a girl, and um, they're in a debate about whether or not there is life after birth. <laughs> and the, the, the daughter, she's insisting that there's this thing called a mother because every now and then I get a hint of her voice and the brother says, how do you know that a mother exists? Ba boys are always the bad ones, by the way. But, but the brother's like, how do you know that, that the mother exists? We've never seen, you've never seen a mother. How do you know a mother's real? And she's just insistent. I know, I know the mother is real. And then, then the, the daughter, she begins to talk about the pressure. Do you feel that pressure? He's like, yeah, I feel the pressure. And she says, I think that pressure that we're feeling is preparing us for something that's next. And he insists, there isn't anything next. There isn't anything after this. Is there life after birth? Yes, right? Yes. Could all of this be a womb? One day, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and they're having a private conversation and they ask him, when will this happen? When will these things take place? And Jesus tells them, listen, there's gonna be wars, there's gonna be rumors of war. Basically, Jesus describes um, today, he says there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars, your news feed's gonna be filled with all sorts of crazy stuff and there's gonna be famines and natural disasters and all this stuff. But then he says this, in verse eight of Matthew 24, he says, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus, in describing this future coming, literally uses the, the language of a birth and saying, yes, there's this pressure that's preparing you. This stuff that's happening, the stuff that frustrates us, the, the stuff that gives us a sense of some unfinished business, they're like the contractions that are preparing us for the place that comes next. I, I sat with this text this week and I couldn't help but just see this massive takeaway for people like us living in times like these. Like you can just, this will be what you can put in your doggy bag and take home and munch on later. I'll just give you this question because it's the question that I asked myself. It was this. How much of my frustration or my anxiety or my anger is formed from forgetting about a future jubilee? Like what if this is just the womb when I sit and think about that and I go, if this is just the womb, if we're just kind of between and, and there's a birth ahead of us, can I just be honest? Loss looks really different in that reality, doesn't it? Loss doesn't quite feel the same when you realize that there's a birth on the other side of this. Pain doesn't feel quite the same, right? It doesn't, it doesn't debilitate you quite the same way. The, the, the stuff that we're accumulating, the things that we have around us, it just doesn't seem that important when you realize that we're just in the womb. The past doesn't seem that hard to get over or to get past or to work through when you know the future that's lying ahead of you. Are you with me on this? If this is just the womb, then there's a birth that's laying in front of us. 
I'm the kind of person, I love putting vacations on my calendar. Anybody else, you like putting vacations on your calendar? Even if it's like a year from now, it's like, I got it there, right? I'm not filling in any other details that I could fill in, but I got that, because that gets you through the bad days, right? Anyone else feel that way? Like, I actually will change the screen, the background on my computer, if, I, if we're going on a cool vacation, like six months in advance, because I just look at that, and on bad days, on days when I don't feel like showing up at the office, I look at that, and I'm like, no, that day's coming, right? Some of you, maybe you trim pictures out, you put them on your rearview mirror in your bathroom. Some of you, I'm, I know what we all do. We all do this, right? Because there's that vacation coming, right? What if somehow we could put a snapshot of the year of Jubilee on our rearview mirror so that when we're sitting in traffic and we're stuck and we're angry, we look up and go, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> there's a birth coming. What if we put those images out there? What if we wrote Jubilee on our calendar and said, that's right, that day's coming. Well, I think that changes everything in the here and now, don't you? It makes us people who can lean into the truths that we've heard today, the things that we've seen with all of our might and all of our life because we know what's in the days ahead. The jubilee is in your future. And God worked into the rhythm of life, an entire year that would remind people in the most profound way, this is not all that there is. There is life after birth. Amen? Would you stand with me? The Jubilee starts with all the debts being paid. With that, let me offer the benediction. May you be men and women who wander this wilderness with great faith. May your joy be made complete. May your peace be profound. May your life be full because you know what lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. What an amazing day to worship together. You guys have an amazing rest of your day in the sun. And we'll see you back next Sunday. We'll see you, see you later. Have a great day.